Research for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this episode, I'm going to talk with Professor Vijay Sivaraman. Vijay is Professor of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Vijay is also the founder and CEO of Canopus Networks. Vijay, hello, and thank you very much for joining me today. It is a pleasure indeed, Rom, to be here. So Canopus Networks, Vijay, is a spin-out from the University of New South Wales where you do your research. And it builds new solutions developed by your research team to optimize internet traffic and bandwidth use. Can you tell me more about the technology and what the what is the problem that you're trying to address? Absolutely. So um, the problem we have with the way the internet is kind of operating uh, by network operators is that there's very little visibility into actually what's happening on the internet links. People uh, keep talking about they want more speed, more speed from the internet, but but really what they really want is a better experience from the internet. And the problem with ha- not knowing what's happening on an internet pipe is that if you're doing something that's very critical, like you're teleconferencing or you're playing a game that is very sensitive to latency, um, your performance or your experience gets affected by what your you know, somebody else in your house is doing. Maybe they're downloading a large file, which is not as time critical. So the point is that the internet by itself doesn't distinguish between what's critical uh, for experience versus what is of less value or less critical to that user experience because there is that lack of visibility. So what Canopus is providing is the visibility into the traffic streams that are going over the internet link so that they can potentially be prioritized as per the user's wishes to improve their experience. So that's what we are about. Which is, I believe, and I've read that uh, the problem actually arose in your in your house yeah that is correct uh, so my two kids are both gamers the older one is an avid uh, counter-strike player and that's a shooting game so it's very very sensitive to the latency on the network because you know if it's anything more than 50 milliseconds uh, his kind of uh, shots and actions don't uh, don't have the intended consequences in the game so uh, whenever he's playing a game i can't actually send emails i definitely can't send attachments because if i do he's lag spikes and he gets really uh, impacted right. in the game. So so that made me think that, look, I'm a professor in telecommunications. We really, uh, and when my kids uh, want to have that experience, it shouldn't stop me working. You know, I should still be able to send emails, but I don't mind if my email takes a few seconds longer to, to send or to download attachments. So um, really felt that the lack of visibility is something that really hamstrung, you know, it affects the way people are able to effectively use the internet. And that's why, you know, Canopus has a mission to make sure that network operators have that visibility and are able to expose it back to end users eventually. Right. So how did that align with your research? How far was your research from addressing this problem? Yeah. So the the research we were doing was actually around a technology called software-defined networking, which um, is a movement a bit like what cloud computing has done to compute. Um, Software-defined networking is doing to networking in the sense 
it is decoupling the hardware from the software. And that means that we can now use commodity hardware that's off the shelf, cheap and high speed, but really has no brains. The brains are all in the software and the software sits outside of the hardware. Uh, and this decoupling means that it lowers the barrier to innovation, which means we can actually develop new software, new apps. Think of the network kind of devices are like now become like an iPhone and you can just write an app. Anybody can write an app for it. The network is becoming a bit like that with this movement. And that means we can actually create innovative software that can do things with network devices, which could not have been done before, because before you had to rely on the vendor to do it for you. But now you can do it yourself. So we have been working in this movement for the last, you know, six to eight years, and we've been, um, you know, funded by Google and a bunch of other entities. So we found this application, so to speak, for visibility as a as a very interesting use case to try out this paradigm of uh, separation of hardware and software. So how did you go from research in your group at the university to a startup? Right. So, um, look, I suppose uh, I've always had a bit of an itch to to convert the research into a, a product, something that can be used. And, you know, I've, I've actually worked at a startup in California. So right after my PhD, I was spent about uh, two and a half to three years at a startup in Silicon Valley as a very early stage employee. So I had some uh, I had tasted the startup kind of environment and I absolutely liked it. Um, and what I found was that, you know, um, a lot of uh, research, just great ideas in research, but they never get translated. So um, I, I've kind of seen both sides to some extent. Obviously, as a researcher, I do research, write papers and, you know, um, understand what's happening in the academic community. Yes. But I've also seen via my startup um, what it takes to translate that into a product because industry doesn't always have the time to take ideas and execute or develop them. You need to get the idea to a much more mature stage where they can absorb it easily. And, and that's, I think, uh, the reason that uh, that motivated me to convert our ideas into a product so that it can be consumed much more easily by industry. Right. But this was a probably a challenging um, activity or enterprise. Did that conflict with your activity as a researcher? Well, actually, no. I think um, I must, you know, credit to UNSW where the environment at UNSW, um, you know, especially with our uh, 2025 strategy and so on to to have the impact, uh, I think definitely uh, worked in my favor. If anything, I found that the university was actually very, very um, amenable. In fact, even helped uh, to a huge extent to to help set up this company and license the technology into the company and in fact even put us in front of investors and and help us uh, raise the money to facilitate the translation so I, I rather than a conflict i actually think it's it's a confluence of uh, of of you know similar kind of uh, uh, outcomes in mind where as a researcher i'm keen to translate the research into practice and I found that the university, with its increased emphasis on impact of the research we do, um, was actually also had a, a strong interest in making sure this technology was was commercialized. So I, I think it, it actually worked out well, and, and possibly also lucky with the timing of of how UNSW's focus is uh, increasingly become towards uh, you know societal impact. Right, so that's quite interesting because what you're describing is a situation where your role as a researcher is not that 
incompatible with your role as a CEO. It, you don't have to have two split personalities to do both roles. Absolutely. In fact, yes. Um, you know, because obviously the, the commercialization we, we're doing is of our own technology, something you know we are passionate about in our group. And I, I do give lots of talks at various venues, um, increasing, uh, you know, not just academic venues, but also industry kind of conferences. It, it worked out quite well. And in fact, uh, even going back four or five years back, I set up an industry alliance called the ANZ SDN Alliance around this software defined networking or SDN technology. And, and I've been engaging with industry uh, over the last, you know, a good five to six years. Um, and because of that, I almost felt it natural that, you know, when I speak, it's not just to the academic audiences, it's also to the industry audiences, because this whole movement of SDN has huge potential, which industry doesn't um, necessarily, you know, today have the skills to go and execute on them. So we were helping them show some use cases where they can get a benefit out of this technology in a more ready-made form than having to execute it internally, which obviously means higher risk and higher investment. So I, I actually think it, it it's very, very aligned, uh, the research work we do and the translation that we're doing into the into the commercial work. Right. And, and so you said the the technology comes from your research group, from your research team. So no one knows that technology better than than you, right? Well, absolutely. In terms of, so we we are we are riding on this wave of software defined networking, which uh, I would say the champions are sitting in Stanford and Google, and Princeton, and to some extent UC Berkeley. So that's where the technology was kind of, uh, or the fundamentals of that technology were kind of conceived almost ten years back, and then there have been a, a few startups that have been. You know, pushing technology. I, I see ourselves as taking this technology and, and creating a use case around visibility, which is absolutely unique. We have not seen any other entity in the world, neither a research group nor a commercial company that has taken the, the model of SDN and trying to give this enhanced visibility. So I, I do believe we are unique in that sense. Right. And it's also interesting, you didn't have to decide between the two roles, your, your roles as a researcher and your roles as a leader of a startup. How did you decide to become the CEO and to stay in control of the startup? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So um, I'm, I'm obviously aware that, you know, being a CEO, it, it's more than just the research side, right? You have to take care of a lot of, uh, I suppose, other things. You have to worry about cash flow. You have to worry about investments. You have to make sure your bookkeeping is right in terms of, you know, board minute meetings and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, frankly, when when I kind of we started this company, my thinking at that point was that, look, maybe I'll be kind of interim CEO for a year and then I'll let some more professional kind of CEO drive it. But right. But in some sense, I've kind of changed that. Um, I've had a change of heart in the sense that as as I go out and talk to customers and even to investors and tell them what the technology is and what the potential is, I feel that you know I, it needs that passion to to convince customers and investors that this is something big. This is something they need to be in on. And uh, so I've kind of uh, I'm going around coming around to the opinion now that i would i like this role because it's not just uh, selling a finished product right uh, which maybe a professional ceo would be a better person to run a company as a selling a finished product this product is still fairly nascent quite novel people haven't seen anything like this before so there's a huge education piece around getting them to understand why it is different how to adopt it 
And I feel that it needs me to provide that kind of thought leadership to them. So it's more than just dropping a product and say, go use it. Um, it's really educating them on how to extract the most benefits out of it, how to adopt it into their workflows. And I'm finding that it still kind of needs me to, I, I feel that it needs me to put that passion in and educate them around this technology. So I, I've, uh, I've therefore kind of, uh, you know, continue to stay in that CEO role as somebody driving this, this kind of vision. And I'm hoping that, you know, eventually, maybe in the next year or two, we'll reach a stage where the product has a maturity and the customers have a sufficient understanding that at that point it might be, I might just want to move into more of a chief scientist role and, and let a more professional CEO kind of grow the company. So both roles are not easy. Being a professor is not easy. Being a CEO is not easy. And some people you know, take a long time to be very good at At, at one of these two careers. What did you have to learn uh, being a researcher to lead the company, to lead a, a spin-out, a startup? Yeah, so I think, well, I suppose I have a little bit of an advantage in the sense I have worked in a startup before. So I had a right. at least a sense of how the dynamics of a startup works. But I think the, the biggest uh, kind of thing I've had to learn and I've realized more and more is you need a good team around you, right? It doesn't, It's not just about the great idea, it's about the execution, the right incentives, the right education around it, and so on. So so I've, I've come to rely on a team. I think we took a, a seed round of investment from uh, from an investor, and, and uh, you know, it's more than just the money. The fact that they've been on the board, they've actually helped me um, not just open doors, but help educate me on what it means to run a company, you know, what are the things to keep an eye on, how to be disciplined in some of your bookkeeping, right. how to structure various, you know, incentives, how to even approach, um, you know, customers through contacts, understanding how the workflow of the customer is, because the customer in our case are telcos, which can be large entities. You know, it's it's not just about getting the engineers in that, in that customer base excited. You have to also get the executives to buy into this. So understand how the sales process works, how, you know, how the incentives are lined up within the, the customer, within their company. Um, so all that has been has been quite an incredible journey, but I'm finding that the more people who want you to succeed, that you engage with you, the more likely you will be to succeed. It's not just about, you know, me trying to make it a success. It's about having other people around me who want to be, you know, part of that success. You want them to have a share in that success. And And I think that 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 teamwork is extremely important. That's very interesting as well. And I'm I'm wondering what has changed you as a researcher um, going through that journey, and in your team, is that affecting your research team as well? And how is it affecting them? I think absolutely. I think the biggest change I'd see as a researcher is that uh, now that we have product and we are kind of being taken seriously by companies, by customers, it is flowing back in the sense that we are now getting access, much better access and understanding of the exact problems the customers are facing in their day-to-day -day jobs, uh, something that we would not have had the visibility. While sitting in your queue and trying to find the right problem to solve, and by the way, I think that research is as much about finding the right problem to solve as it is to solve the problem. Yes, Because I could not agree more. Yeah, very often we think this must be a good problem to solve and we solve it and we write a paper and the paper gets you know, accepted in the academic community and we feel happy about it. That is great, but very, very few papers actually go on to get implemented, at least in the engineering uh, field, as a product. And 
And that success rate as a product is very low, which means we never really get to understand what customers really need solved and how do they use a particular idea. So one of the biggest things we have got is once since the customers are now very engaged in what we're doing, we're getting much better visibility into some of the problems, into both sharpening the problems we tackle and also finding adjacent problems that can now come back as, as kind of research projects. Mm-hmm the university to our research group to, to investigate further. So that's number one. And the second biggest thing is because our products being used by customers, we are actually seeing what are what is some of the data that's being generated. And once you're able to see the data on what's happening out there, you're able to come back and inform your research a lot better and even share uh, some of that data to improve our machine learning algorithms and the likes, because obviously these algorithms feed on data. Right. It's, sometimes I, I see there's a fear of um, customers or industries uh, limiting your freedom as an academic researcher. Uh, not that I agree with that, but do you, do you have an opinion about this? Um, do they do they shape what you do and what you think? Do they influence you? Uh, well, look, there is there is always a fine line between um, you know how much you want to make public what you're finding. As in, as a researcher, we get excited when we discover something or invent something and we quickly want to talk about it write about it speak at conferences and so on and obviously as a commercial entity and um, you have to be a little bit more cautious about how much you're letting your competitors know about what you're doing so obviously there is a little bit of care we have to exercise uh, when we when we disclose uh, you know some of the methods we we develop or some of the learnings we get from the data we see in the field but i think Investors um, and in general, the commercial world, they also see the value, especially with the new technology. They realize that unless the customer gets educated on this new technology, they are unlikely to appreciate what it is and therefore unlikely to buy it. And so they do realize that we have to disclose certain things and get that academic credibility, so to speak, so that we can better educate our customers using information that we have put out there. So I think it, it is a bit of a balance, but so far, luckily, I have not found our commercial activities to be a, a big inhibitor for the for us to be able to publish or talk about the research that we do. But I guess that is yet to be seen as the as the company grows and evolves. Maybe I might have a slightly different answer in a year or two. But so, but the fact that you've got technology that comes from research, excellent research, that must be a huge advantage. And so can you also use, say, you know, it's been accepted by my peers, by other academics to demonstrate the value, to have more credibility? Absolutely, absolutely. So some of the kind of, uh, you know, we have in our research obviously done some benchmark testing of our methods of being able to classify network traffic and measure user experience. And and, and we have published the academic papers. That definitely gives a reference point when we talk to customers and customers ask us, well, how do you compare with competition? We say, well, look, at least here are our benchmark tests. Our accuracy is 99.2%. We don't know what your competitors' accuracies are, but ours is benchmark. It's out in the public and it's validated by the community. But that definitely gives us that credibility that what we're doing is 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 solid. And I think investors, uh, and depending on the kind of investors you pick, uh, luckily the investors we have are, are very much behind having strong intellectual property. They do want to see a product that is very differentiated, that has very strong, you know, fundamentals to it, and is also protected in the form of patents. So, so in that sense, our investors do see our 
core intellectual property, which is which is fairly deep as as a huge asset and a big differentiator for the company and something that'll let it grow to you know to a much bigger size in the years to come. Where does uh, the IP lie? Does it belong to the company? Yeah, so very good question. So the intellectual property, the original IP was developed at UNSW. The patents yes. were filed through UNSW and the ownership of the IP is still with UNSW. UNSW has given an exclusive um, license to the company to exploit this IP. And there are trigger points. Uh, you know, when those trigger points are hit in terms of either an investment or a revenue, the IP gets automatically assigned to the company at that point. And that is purely there as a protection mechanism so that UNSW is not giving away IP to a company that fails to exploit it or is not making appropriate use of it. So, and in my opinion, this requires quite a mature conversations between the entrepreneurs, the startup, and, and, and a university or tech transfer office. What was your experience? Well, I must say overall it's been very pleasant. I have found working with the Knowledge Exchange Division of UNSW that they absolutely are aligned in terms of wanting to take the IP and actually making some good use out of it. So the fact that a company was set up that is willing to license the, the IP in, I think was definitely a, seen as a very positive sign by UNSW. And in return, UNSW also gets some benefits, right? They have an equity stake in the company and they also get, they have got uh, multiple research contracts back from the company Uh, into UNSW to continue the line of research and to further develop the IP. So I think it's overall it's been a win-win situation, a win-win-win. I'd say three-way, and so far it's it's worked out quite well. So that's that's interesting, and and you touched on this before, but um, sometimes the advice for researchers is not to create a startup, but to um, maybe protect the intellectual uh, property and maybe try and find someone to license this uh, the the IP. But you decided. No, we're going to create a startup. We're going to be in control. Yeah, look, it, it's it's very specific to the IP that you have, and there's a few factors to consider. The, I mean, firstly, um, I'm not too much in favor of just protecting the IP because there's just too much IP that's sitting on our shelves, right? Yes. As researchers, we develop so much IP, so much. Every paper has intellectual property in it. And look, as somebody who's written what is it, 160 odd research publications now, I can tell you over the years, there's a hell of a lot of IP sitting on my shelf. Reality is 90 to 95% of that is just going to sit there and yes. it's never going to get used. And that, I think, is, is, is a worse problem to have than literally just giving it away and making somebody good make use of it in the world, right? So with regard to how to take the IP, do you form a startup or do you try to license the IP? There's a few factors. The first thing is, you know, is the IP something that can be licensed to a company that, that is exactly interested in what you've produced? Because bear in mind, often as researchers, we produce things without having that certainty that this is exactly the problem that the industry really needs. And so, so, so the first step is knowing if that IP, is, where does it fit in the ecosystem, right? which is a player that could possibly acquire this IP and just this piece of IP, and it has to fit exactly with the way they work. Um, the second bit is, of course, how many does it take to develop this IP into a product? Uh, and that investment one needs to size up. It could be fairly small. I mean, look, luckily our company is a software company, so the investment was not huge, right? So for us, um, we felt that the investment needed to develop it into a product was manageable enough 
that we could actually take it as a startup. The other thing is, of course, when you try to license IP to a company, you have to understand if they are kind of philosophically aligned with the way that you're thinking of how technology would evolve. And as I said, the technology we're working on, SDN, is, is a fairly disruptive technology. And if we were to try to shop our IP with the existing vendors, who are, in my opinion, slightly older school, they've been doing things, you know, the, the kind of the, the way prior to software-defined networking, they would see this as a competitive technology. They wouldn't have the incentive to necessarily develop this IP in the way that I would like to see developed in the new way I think the world is evolving in networking. So for us, it felt that it would be better because it's so disruptive. Um, you, we wouldn't find um, a sufficiently motivated party to take this IP and develop it further. Uh, we felt it would be better to just start it as a separate company because the required investment was kind of relatively low and it was disruptive enough that it became successful. The reward could be really high. How do you split your time between the two, between the research and the company? Is it hard to do? Do you, do you transition smoothly be, you know, between the two or is it completely compatible? In terms of time commitment, yes. I mean, you know, you, you start when you start the company, you kind of try to notionally make it one day a week. But you know how it kind of creeps up, right? It's, yes. it's, it's never one day a week. And the moment you take an investment, your investor wants to see you heart and soul in the company, right? So so I've actually taken a sabbatical um, for, for the rest of this year, and uh, I'm investing a lot more of my time into the company. But I guess the advantage in my case has been because the message we've been giving and, and on our research, we've been positioning it for the last literally like five to six years, is very aligned with the direction of the company. The education piece is very aligned on, on both fronts, right? So what we talk when we when I give my academic talks or research papers or even industry talks, I'm evangelizing the potential of software-defined networking and what all can be done. And what we're doing in the company is one particular use case. But there are other use cases around cybersecurity and so on, which which all ties into the longer vision, which I'm able to speak with my academic hat on. I can talk about the long-term vision of how PC networks will evolve over the next, you know, five to 10 years. And what we're doing with the company is is kind of a short-term step, something that, you know, is is the first application that is out there that leverages this paradigm. So it is fairly aligned in that sense, which makes it easier, uh, you know, when I give talks and I engage with people to say, look, here's a short-term step from the company, but there's a long-term vision which is being driven from the whole kind of academic and research point of view. But and and funding agencies who provide funding to the research are also now asking for, uh, for evidence of impact. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I absolutely think that uh, you know, I mean, I've been in Australia for uh, about eighteen years now, and I'm over the last few years, I'm I'm definitely perceiving a greater interest in the translation of research, uh, not just you know publication of papers and, and the production of kind of fundamental research, but the ability to translate it to engage kind of industry into into translating these ideas into into dollars, right? Into into real products uh, and benefit for the economy. So in that sense, uh, I, I think that that appetite is a lot higher now than what I've seen uh, prior. So I think it's probably a good time to be trying to do the translation. Well, and I also see that younger researchers are very keen to do both, to do proper academic research, but also find an immediate impact, solve problems, real problems. Yeah, that is true. Um, I think definitely, um, I mean, 
people are realizing that just writing papers, especially in engineering, I mean, in science, it's, it's quite different. Science is much more fundamental and it's about discovery, whereas engineering is a lot about inventions and, and understanding, you know, how these inventions can be adopted. And I think overall, there is a realization that, you know, that that translation needs to be done, that higher emphasis needs to be put on that. And uh, but I, I think I will also say that it is a bit of a process and engaging with industry for academics can sometimes be it's a, it's it can take longer than people think. Right. It's it's very unlikely that you take an academic idea and and you know, the first industry partner you talk to, they say, wow, this is a great area. I want to do this. <laughs> yeah. it, it takes years to build up that trust. You have to constantly adapt your language, your way of presenting it. You have to understand the workflow because people in industry, you know, um, obviously there's time is tight, money is tight, and you have to find the best way of inserting your solution into their workflow. So, you know, they get a reward if it works, but they don't take the risk if it doesn't work, right? And finding that way, of making sure the reward is high but the risk is low, I found is, is often the most challenging bit of, of trying to get your research idea in there. And that's something that younger academics also, obviously, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, challenged with uh, with time because they have to develop their teaching, supervise students, uh, develop their promotion applications and so on. So, um, you know, it's something that uh, they have to be conscious that it is, it is going to be a process, it is going to take time. Uh, but the rewards are big once you get there. Right. What else can they do to prepare themselves for that? If 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 they think they've got an invention that might fit a problem, what? How mm. can they prepare themselves for for the journey? Well, I think a lot of the preparation is just mental, in the sense that realizing that you are going to get pushed back, you're going to get knocked back. You're being good. You are definitely going to be told by several people that what you're doing is doesn't really fit. Um, you have to be ready to keep adapting and keep going back and be extremely persistent. And I think, you know, at least I have found over the last, I suppose, uh, 10 odd years that, you know, that I've been um, trying to push my ideas at the industry. In the beginning, you don't get taken as seriously. You keep knocking back. You keep going back. You keep giving talks. You keep refining your message. And at some point, you, you reach tipping point where they suddenly say, "Oh, geez, this is this is pretty good stuff," you know, and and you will see that escalation of interest. Um, and it just requires that perseverance. But I think academics are good at perseverance. We keep persevering with the, you know, ARC grants and the likes, uh, <laughs> even though we face a lot of rejection. So it is something that that perseverance is needed. It does take time. It does take a bit of toll in terms of maybe your publication outputs or the amount of time you to your students and so on so but but once you reach the point where industry is engaging with you and i've had you know the last 10 years research contracts from many many companies you know the google cisco optus telstra and you name it and hp and so on so and with each time you do get that engagement your confidence goes up more and more till you really reach a point where the rewards can be quite high you feel more and more comfortable and confident that what you're saying is something that the industry will, you have kind of put it in a way that the industry can adopt easily. So you have to lower that barrier for adoption. And, and that does take time. Right. That's fantastic. Um, so you, you said you, you've taken a sabbatical for the rest of the year. Um, 
what's on your agenda? What are the things you have to do and where is Canopus going this year? Yeah, so the biggest thing we are doing is we are starting a fundraise. So we are, uh, uh, the timing is unfortunately not in our favor. Yes. But uh, we we took, uh, you know, a seed round of funding about 15 months back. And, uh, and we are now going through a Series A uh, fundraise. And we are talking to a, a, a range of investors. Um, so I guess for the next few months, uh, well, at least a few weeks, uh, if not months, the focus is very much going to be on uh, raising the capital so that we can uh, grow the company and we can, of course, sustain the company. Um, and also the kind of customers we are working with, largely telco customers, there's a long engagement cycle where you know you have to go through multiple trials before the product, um, actually they commit to buying the product. So so it's a, it's a bit of a marathon. and. Uh, I think we are going through a very critical stage of Canopus where we want to make sure that the product has reached a stage of maturity where it's usable. It is being used by some smaller customers and we want to make sure that it has all the robustness um, and the features so that the bigger um, customers can can adopt it. So that's going to be the so the prime focus for the next you know few months is going to be securing the funds, growing the company and to make sure uh, we convert some of our trial customers into paying customers. That's, that's super exciting. Maybe one last question. Are, are you not going to miss research in the next year? Well, the, uh, the thing is, I'm actually not stop research at all. And as we do more and more of the commercial work, it sparks a lot of uh, potential research opportunities that uh, that we are translating back. So if anything, I'm, I would think we are actually escalating our research activities uh, because think of it, what we have kind of commercialized is the first app. We are now building the next stages of app. We have actually built up a research team in cybersecurity that is using some of the visibility we're getting into network traffic patterns to try to use that visibility to detect you know, cyber attacks, for example. So um, in at least maybe, you know, in my case, I'm finding the commercial activities actually spurring on more research. And I'm even more confident now that the research we are now doing will be even more pertinent when it potentially, hopefully, gets commercialized at some point in the future. Right. Well, Vijay, that, that was a super interesting, fascinating, very optimistic conversation. Uh, thank you very much for the time you've given me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ron. Thank you very much for the and, opportunity. Uh, thanks, Vijay. Okay, thanks and bye. Thank you everyone for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for What. <laughs>